Hey everyone, Steve here, and I just want to give a quick shout out to Lionhearted Justice Ministries, R. Peterson 44, and L. Martinez for giving us reviews on iTunes. iTunes does their rankings based on an algorithm of downloads and reviews, so each review we get helps bump us up those podcast charts. If you like what you've heard and you've got a moment, please go to iTunes and leave us an honest review. We would appreciate it more than you know. We've got a link embedded in the summary of this MP3 to make it even easier to do so. And if you do, you'll probably get a shout out on a future episode. Thanks. I think there's a big difference between competing and comparing. Comparing is all about you know being better than somebody. But competing is about getting better. And so I, th- I think it's the same in sports and in business. Instead of getting into this place where we're ranking human beings, um, we're, we're actually starting to look at people who do stuff that, we, that really resonates with us and say, how did they do that? What's at the base of that? Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, former professional soccer player, mentor, coach, and author, Jamie Gilbert. Now, Jamie got on our radar over Twitter and through his book, Burn Your Goals, The Countercultural Approach to Achieving Your Greatest Potential. We love Jamie, we love his heart, and really just who he is. He's a great encouragement for us, and I'm excited to introduce him to you all. Here now is how my partner, John Ramstead, started our conversation with Jamie Gilbert on this edition of Eternal Leadership. All right, Steve, today on Eternal Leadership, we have just a a great friend of the show, uh, Jamie Gilbert. Mm -hmm. Uh, He reached out to me. He's been listening to the podcast, and... uh, and we got together in person for coffee. And when I heard his story, I'm like, we have to have Jamie on. Uh, <laughs> people, people might have heard the episode with Daniel Henderson uh, on just having this deeper life. And and Jamie's been mentored by Daniel, was a professional soccer player, and just has this incredible journey into what he's doing now. Uh, he started a firm called Train to Be Clutch. That's how I actually first found out about him. And he wrote just in this incredible book uh, called Burn Your Goals, The Countercultural Approach to Achieving Your Greatest Potential. And when he talks about achieving your greatest potential, uh, Jamie has, has done it in his life and is, is equipping and inspiring people to do that. So, Jamie, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you know, as we get started, I'd love for you to just share a little bit about your background and your journey, and then I, I definitely have a list of questions here for you. I don't know if we'll get to them all, but we'll do our best. So let me cool. turn it over to you, Jamie. Well, um, so my background, I, I grew up playing uh, soccer in Oklahoma um, in a town called Broken Arrow, and I got to be honest, at that point, soccer was my life. Uh, you know, I started playing soccer because the, the girl next door who was really cute uh, she started playing when we were about nine or ten, and she was she was beating me all over in the streets. And so I was like, "All right, mom, we got to sign up. I got to get into this." And from there, I just really had a love for the game. Um, and so I played I played soccer. I mean, it was pretty much all that I did, all that I thought about. And you know, I I heard a lot of people a lot of stuff from people about you know having goals and setting that stuff. And so I did, and I I set crazy goals. You know, I, I would dream and. And, you know, I wanted to win a World Cup by the time I was 18 years old. Um, you know, I wanted to captain the U.S. national team. I wanted to play overseas uh, for an Italian club called AC Milan. And, you know, I wanted to be the world player of the year. Um, and I, I had all that stuff taped up on my door. And in the mornings, you know, I would do setups. And I had a ball that was actually hanging down from, uh, from the bottom side of my brother's uh, top bunk bed. And I'd be doing setups and heading the ball like I was just absolutely crazy about this stuff. And 
um, had a had a pretty good measure of success um, in Oklahoma. I think when we were 18, our club team was one of the top four teams in the country, um, and you know, I was an integral role in that. Um, and so, I kind of always thought things were just going to roll out from there, and you know, it was just going to be this steady incline of success. And um, I got to be I got to be honest with you, you know, soccer became it became everything to me, which led me to this this roller coaster in life where, you know, some days I would feel like, you know, I operated out of a three out of 10. Um, and I would feel like a three, you know, whether that's because the guy was marking scored and beat me or, um, you know, or whether I just couldn't remember anything great that I did or nobody said anything to me after the game. And some days I was out of 10, you know, it just felt like the world was, uh, it's that Frank Sinatra song, you know, I got the world on a string and I'm sitting on a rainbow. And uh, I realized for, for after a little while that, you know, soccer really was the source of my joy and sorrow. And I grew up in a Christian household. My parents never forced anything upon me. Um, very, very loving people. Very, very gracious. Um, and, you know, they never told me, hey, you're, you know, we, we love you when, when you win. And, you know, when you don't, they were just, they, it, was, it was really a source of unconditional love. And so um, soccer was everything that I did. I went to uh, Vanderbilt University and played there. And um, it wasn't necessarily the success that I thought we'd have. You know, we didn't make it to a conference tournament uh, until my final season. And after my junior season, um, things really turned around. Uh, we came back from Christmas break and our coach called us into the locker room, which was kind of weird. And, um, you know, he walked in and he's like, guys, I don't really know the best way to say this, but they cut our soccer program. And uh, we we're all just like, hold on, this guy doesn't joke around. Like, um, and he's like, yeah, they cut our soccer program. They're adding women's swimming and women's bowling. <laughs> and so, you know, if cutting the soccer program wasn't bad enough, they were adding women's bowling. Um, and that's what was making way. And for me, it was this, it, it just felt like there was this insurmountable change in my life that I had no control over. And immediately mm -hmm. at that time in my life, you know, I didn't understand about having parameters and limiting beliefs and that there were possibilities outside of what my pea-sized brain could understand. Um, and so at that point, like I thought it was all over and I burst out of the locker room. I went running out to the soccer stadium. Um, I was in tears and just sobbing and I called my mom. She didn't answer. And I called my dad and, um, you know, I, I was sobbing on the phone. I was like, dad, they got the program. I don't know what to do. And, you know, my dad, um, really, really strong faith in Christ. He's a, um, a Christian counselor in addiction and family health. And uh, I'll never forget it. He, he just said, okay, um, we'll pray about it and we'll figure it out. And I, I mean, to be honest, like when he said that, it was like all the noise stopped in my life. And I was like, wow, we're, we're going to pray about this. And it was, it was something that I, I, I work with people in leadership on and, and I work on myself is trying to make sure that our confidence outweighs other people's anxiety. Um, and, and so, you know, my dad did that for me that day. And, um, and it was really crazy because, you know, for me, it was like, how do I pass up this top class education that we've already poured thousands of dollars into um, and you know, at the time, the timing wasn't great because it was the spring season and it was just beginning. And so if I was going to transfer, I figured, you know, I'll probably have to set out a year and that would have just been the death of me at the time, you know, not playing soccer. And so I just had all these limiting beliefs and all these parameters that just made the option so small. And, uh, anyways, my dad encouraged me to pray about it. And so we did. Um, and I'll never forget this within about 24 hours, I had 
five offers to some top like 30, 30 you know, teams in the country. And so it was um, one day after praying. Yeah. Yeah. And it, mm-hmm. it, it was, it was just really crazy. And, you know, a lot of teams knew that we, uh, they had heard what happened. And, and so that, you know, they were looking for players and, um, and so I had a couple different options. One, you know, we were just talking, my family's from Michigan, uh, Michigan alum. One was actually go to Michigan and that really excited me. You know, I was just like, man, finally I get to wear maize and blue, you know, um, how cool would that be? And I remember just praying about it one day and I heard a knock on my door in, in my dorm room and I was walking through the hall and I was just praying to God. And, you know, I didn't have a stellar prayer life at that time. It's not something that I leaned on up until that point. And I was just praying. And I said, God, just show me where to go. And I opened the door and there's this guy uh, named Austin Woolard. Uh, he, he was at Vanderbilt playing soccer too. And we grew up a little bit together. And the first thing that he said to me, he's like, Jamie, I think you should go to Memphis. And, you know, he doesn't remember saying this. And to this day, I don't know why he started the conversation that way. But uh, he came in. I don't know what we were talking about. We probably played something on, you know, the PlayStation. And right after he left, I was like, all right, going to Memphis. And I called my parents and I was like, you know, I think this is where I should go. They're like, great. And two days later, um, my wife now, Amy, she she went to school with me. She's a year behind and we were dating at the time. And she drove me down two days later and I started at Memphis. But the real the real change that happened for me, once I got to Memphis, um, I knew absolutely nobody, absolutely nobody. And so it it dawned on me, like, I have a chance here to become the type of person that I want to be. Um, and that really didn't dawn on me before because I, I went to Vanderbilt with some guys who I played club ball with growing up. So they all knew me for what I did and I kind of fit into that mold. But when I knew I was, I, I didn't know anybody and I started reading scripture, I was like, man, I could be anybody. And there's a guy on my team named Tim Lonergan at Vanderbilt and we played the same position. He didn't play a whole lot because I beat him out of our position. Um, but this guy loved Jesus and he never preached to us, but you could just tell and, he, uh, even though I was beating him out of our position, he was the one guy who just treated me with absolute unconditional love. And he would tell me after games or, you know, at practice after a weekend, we had games, he'd be like, Jamie, you know, these are some things that I saw. Do you want to work on some of these things together? And I'm thinking to myself, like, dude, you should be like sabotaging me and licking your lips because you're going to get the play. Um, and I thought about it and I was like, you know, I want to be like Tim and I knew Tim loved Jesus. And so I started reading scripture like crazy and getting involved in some Bible studies. And, um, and it really just had a significant impact on my life and led me to, um, you know, really start devoting a lot of my future and a lot of the decisions that I was making to prayer. Um, and you know, it it really started to change things. So anyways, from, from Memphis, so Jamie, that one interaction with Tim and really seeing, I guess, just an authentic, you know, heart of Christ coming through without him sharing scripture or the gospel sounds like that was a real inflection point in your life. Just one person being authentic to who they were and who they were created to be. Right. And it, and it wasn't one interaction. That's the thing, John, it was two and a half years. Mm. And I know, like I, I was telling him at the time, I can remember a conversation one time and I told him, you know, yeah, I, I go to church and, you know, my, my family speaks in tongues and all this stuff. And my life at that point was very incongruent with scripture. I mean, drinking girls, I mean, just all sorts of stuff. And, um, and so it was two and a half years of him just really, being that unconditional source of love. And he didn't even know this. Like I talked to him like maybe two years ago and I was like, Tim, did you know all this happened? And he's like, no, 
<laughs> like he had no idea that the way that he was treating me two and a half years later was actually like discipleship in reverse. Mm. And one of the things, you know, I get to speak to a lot of people, a lot of different groups. And every time I speak, somebody comes up to me and they're like, hey, so, you know, it sounds like you're a believer. I'm like, yeah. And they're like, hey, I want to, you know, how do I tell people on my team or in my organization about Jesus? And I'm like, well, don't. Um, And I always ask them this question. I always say, you know, are you willing to engage in a real and meaningful relationship for the next 40 years with that person, regardless of whether or not they come to Christ? And it's really interesting to see the consternation on their face. And I've had people explain this to me that like the human side of them is kind of like, yeah, they're people like I should treat them great. But then like the the Christian side of them is like, wait, is that OK? Like that I that this person doesn't come to Christ? Like, shouldn't that be what it's all about? And, you know, I I, I just see a lot of times that when we treat people with unconditional love, it really has more impact on them than anything that we could say. And so, you know, I I send out video tweets all the time. And one of the things that I love to send and just remind people of when they follow me is that people are craving two things. We're craving to be authentically heard. um, So like genuinely listened to and to experience unconditional love. And in my experience with people that I get to interact with, when I when I can treat people with that unconditional love and they feel that it's something that they haven't felt before. I'm not telling them that they need to do anything. I'm trying to help them understand that their worth comes from who they are, not what they do. And so, so it's not about an outcome, like I want them to convert or change their behavior. It's about just sowing into them without any expectations of anything coming back. Right. And so, you know, it comes back to this, this concept. Um, there's a Greek word that's uh, it's icon, E-I-K-O-N. And it's the Greek word that's used in Genesis one twenty six that says God created man in his own image. And I remember um, I went on to play soccer in Ireland and I went to a Bible college out there. And I remember this uh, guy, this New Testament theologian, uh, Scott McKnight, he said, we're all uh, we're all cracked icons. We're cracked icons in need of restoration. But we do have that icon, that image. That's what we were created in. And, you know, I, I, I really do believe that we all have this longing for unconditional love. And, um, and I think that we, a lot of times we mistake that our value comes from what we do instead of who we are. And so, like, if you, if you just think about, you know, take sports, for example, and you turn on the Golf Channel or you turn on ESPN, the reason we're going to talk about you is because of something cool that you did. Not really about who you are but something cool that you did, right? So one of the guys I get to train who's on tour right now is Kevin Streelman, and they're at the Masters, and he, he won the par three yesterday. Well, they start talking about who he is and the heart behind what he does, but they only talk about that because he actually won <laughs> the par three contest. And, and it's really interesting because a lot of us start to buy into the, what society promotes that, you know, if you do cool stuff, then that means you're, a, you're in this upper echelon of human beings, and so, you know, I, I don't remember where it was that I was reading this recently, but um, I think what happens is we can kind of rank people according to their status, their title, or what they've accomplished, or we rank them according to what they haven't accomplished or what they haven't done yet. And it's really interesting. I don't know if you guys have ever been treated that way, but I got on a call the other day with somebody who, who runs in like, you know, the most elite circles in the world. And the way that that person treated me on the phone... <laughs> was really just so disheartening. 
it, it wasn't necessarily an interest in in what I'm what I'm passionate about or you know what what I bring to the table. It was let me tell you about myself. Let me tell you about all the things that I've done. And it's really interesting. So like th- this whole thing about you know your identity coming from who you are that you're created in God's image, it starts to change things because there's this principle that I talk on a lot um, and it's about judgment. And the psychological principle is that the measure we use to judge other people is the same measure that we use to judge ourselves. And it's actually a biblical principle. It's found in Matthew 7 where, where Jesus is talking about judgment. And so if we're, if we're looking at other people and we judge them according to how much money they have in the bank account or you know, one of these stupid arbitrary things of how many Twitter followers they have, then we start to judge ourselves according to that same standard. And if we have a lot of Twitter followers, we're like, oh, man, I'm pretty good. But if we don't have a whole lot of Twitter followers, we're like, man, I pale in comparison to this other person. And this shows up in business and sports oh. and relationships and it's working everywhere. in the community. And so what What are – because you shared this with me when we got together for, for coffee, and I'd like you to unpack this a little bit. When, when you have this mindset and you're judging people from a certain perspective, mm-hmm. what does that do to yourself and um, the potential – that you could have? And then how, how do you move past that? Right. Uh, it's a great question. And so I think what happens for a lot of us is we get into this comparison game, right? Where we're comparing people. And I, I use this little tagline that, you know, really shed some light for me. I think there's a big difference between competing and comparing. And so I encourage people to compete, um, but I try to help them move away from comparing. And so comparing is all about, you know, being better than somebody, but competing is about getting better. And, and so, you know, going back to the proverb, iron sharpens iron. Competing is looking at somebody and, and saying, hey, I really love your, your spirit and how you do stuff. So my mentor, Daniel Henderson, I love the fact that he – I really feel like he lives this, this thing that he talks about, that there's sufficiency in the Holy Spirit. Like we don't, we don't need a whole lot else. Like if the Holy Spirit really is Jesus, God, if that's really what laid the foundation of this earth, then – we should rely on that. And that has a radical, makes a radical change in how we do church or how we do functions. And, you know, his stuff, he takes people up to a mountain for two weeks and he's like, I don't exactly know what I'm going to talk about. We're going to open the scriptures and see what happens. And then this beautiful thing, you know, starts to open up. And so for me, that I, I try not to compare myself saying, oh, you know, Daniel's way up here on this mountain and I suck in comparison. I got to do something to get there. Um, for me, it's this, it's this whole competing thing about getting better and looking at his life and seeing what he does and say, you know, I would really like to move more towards becoming like him. Uh, what does he do? Uh, how does he do things? And the more that he invites me into his life, I start to realize that he spends a lot of time in prayer. <laughs> I mean, a lot of time in prayer. And so I, th- I think it's the same in sports and in business. Instead of getting into this place where we're ranking human beings, um, we're, we're actually starting to look at people who do stuff that we that really resonates with us and say, how did they do that? What's at the base of that? So like the, you know, the guy, Timothy Lonergan, who had the most Im- impact on me, when I started to look at him, it wasn't, it wasn't, hey, Tim is this great, you know, saint. He never does anything wrong. Um, no, that's not true. Uh, but I started to look at his life and I was like, what does he do? And I knew he was in the word. I knew he was praying. And I knew that he was just interacting with people just because he loved the people. 
not because of anything they can do. And so I think what happens for a lot of us is we get into this comparison game. And so I always talk to people about the difference between competing and comparing. And, you know, when you, when you said the word mindset, um, it's, there's a, there's a book that's called mindset written by Carol Dweck, uh, mm-hmm. D W E C K. And she's out of Stanford and she's got 20 years of research that shows that we inevitably as human beings, we fall into either a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. And, the thing that's really interesting, a lot of us get into this fixed mindset, which is where I was that, you know, largely the characteristics or the people that we are, the cards that were dealt early on in life are largely what we're going to end up with and we have to play within. And she said, you know, all the research shows that your brain is a muscle, that your characteristics are malleable, right? And so I, I challenge people on these I am statements. Um, and, and because I'm interested to know like what we reinforce about who we are. So a girl who plays golf, she told me I was having a one-on-one session with her and within, within five minutes, she told me at least 10 times that she was an introvert. And I was like, you know, listen, Gina, I don't know if you're an introvert or not, but I can tell you this, (laughs) the more that you tell yourself you're an introvert, the more that you're going to do introverted things because we want to prove ourselves right. And I said, to be honest, I haven't talked for the last 10 minutes and I'm a complete stranger. So (laughs) I know that you have the ability to do some things that are not introverted. And it was really interesting because I think a lot of us reinforce these beliefs about what's possible or who we are. And that's really getting into the fixed mindset. And we like to I like to think of it sometimes as just this really small box around, you know, what we what we think is possible and who we are. And we're afraid to try and step outside of that box because we're terrified of failure. Like as a society, myself, terrified of failure because we want to look like we have it all together. The people that we see on TV who are playing in the Masters, they look like they have it all together. Newsflash, they don't. Um, They're playing very, very scared, to be honest. (laughs) Um, But we want to look like we have it all together. And so if we step outside of who we feel like we are, where we fit in in society or what level we can operate at in business or in sport, well, then we can fall and everybody's going to see us. And so, you know, part of my story was when I came back from Ireland, I I had an injury to my pelvis for two years. And so I hadn't played And when I came back to the States, uh, my business partner and my best friend, who actually he started trying to be clutch and I joined with him, he asked me while we were driving around in in California, um, or I told him, I said, you know, I really feel like I want to continue playing professionally. And and I was like, but here are all the things, you know, I've been injured for two years. We're at elevation. I don't know anybody who works in the Rapids organization here in, in Colorado. You know, I just found all these reasons why it wouldn't work. They're what I talk to people about. They're they're yes buts. And, like, yeah, and this is what you that. talk to people about, right? Right. Yeah. And, and so I think a lot of us have these yes buts. We're like, yeah, I would do this, but I would do this, but. And so Joshua just stopped the car. I remember we were in Santa Monica and he's like, Jamie. And my wife was pregnant at the time with our, with our son. And she was like, he was like, Jamie, you know, are you going to ask your kids to chase their dreams? And I said, absolutely. And he's like, well, you better have chased yours. And that was like a hit in the chest. I was like, all right, this makes no sense, <laughs> but maybe this is uh, maybe that's why it makes sense is because it makes little sense. And so, anyways, I uh, I was reading a book at the time that was called "In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day," um, which is a fantastic book. A guy named Mark Batterson, who, who uh, you know is a leader at a big church in in DC, and his whole thing was uh, you know talking to people about doing the best you can with what you have where you are, and. 
I think a lot of us get in this place of paralysis because we're like, oh, well, when my circumstances change or when I have better resources, then I'll do something. And so that's not really true. we got to come back to what we can do right now. And so I was working at an insurance agency at the time and working at a golf course, picking balls off the range. And I decided, you know, I'm going to go out to the Rapids organization. I know nobody. I'm just going to drive out there, go to practice, see if I can meet a coach. I'm just going to extend my hand and say, hey, can I come play with you guys? Now, I don't know if you guys know anybody who started their professional career that way. (laughs) But to my knowledge, that had never been done. But I was like, you know, that's something that I can do. Like, I I can do that. Is it going to be comfortable? No. And, you know, at this time, I'm 26. Um, you know, I've, I, I've played at a really high level and to go out here, to go out there and do this, like it just made no sense. So I go to practice, I'm sitting there, I feel really shameful. Um, the team finishes their practice. They all walk by me and I'm kind of covering my face so nobody sees me and I'm waiting for a coach and no coach pops out. And so I wait a few minutes and then I was like, all right, it's not going to happen. So I jump in my father-in-law's truck and, um, the words from this book in a pit with a lion were really ruminating in my head. Um, I actually took all of my favorite quotes and I got on garage band on my Mac and I put it to music and I just had all these quotes that I was putting into my heart and into my mind again and again. And as I was trying to drive out of Dick's sporting goods park, I just heard all these things come to me, Jamie on the other side of your greatest fears are your greatest opportunities. Um, God wants to get you where he wants you to go more than you want to get where he wants you to go. Do the best you can with what you have. So I turned around parked the truck, waited for a coach. Somebody popped out and I jumped out. You know, my voice probably cracked. Um, you know, I was like, Hey, this is what I've done. This is who I am. Can I come play? And I don't know if you've ever had one of those silences that feels like a minute long when it's really like three seconds, Yeah. but that's kind of how it felt. And he was like, all right. And send me your details through email. And two days later I started training with this team. And at the time I was still in this fixed mindset of, I don't want to stand out for the right reasons. So I'll fit in for the wrong reasons. Like I want to look like I got it all together. I want to look cool. And so I remember one day our coach told us, he's like, Hey, let's partner up for some one-on-one drills. So I looked to my left and there's a guy named Pablo Mastrioni, who's now the coach at the Rapids, but he's probably one of the most decorated players in U S soccer history. And I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so I turned to my right and there's this guy, Marvell Wynn, who's the fastest guy in the MLS. I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> I turned around, there's this guy, Andre Akpan, who's like this up and coming kid. And I'm like, no. And so who did I find but this little 16-year-old kid named Brian who weighs like 120 pounds. He's like five foot two. And he got a hall pass to get out of his geometry class to come and practice. Now, thank and goodness my, Brian was there, right? Yeah, I know, right? And so my justification was, you know, I'm going to help this kid get better. Uh, that's a lie. Like, I was terrified of standing out and trying really hard because I was fearful that people would, would realize that I didn't have everything together. And it finally hit this point where, you know, I was reading through Carol Dweck's book about the growth mindset and fixed mindset. I was like, that's me. I'm operating with this fixed mindset. And so I started to, I started to go to practice looking for opportunities to fail. And that's not fun. Um, I'll be honest. Like when I first started doing that, it really sucked. Um, because, you know, I was like the smelly kid in in class. Like nobody wanted to be around me because they were just beating me like 15 to nothing. And, uh, we have this phrase that really encapsulates the gross mindset that we give to people. We, we tell them, uh, to really start to believe that anything that happens to me today is in my best interest because it's an opportunity to learn and grow. 
And so I started looking for some of these growth opportunities, started taking on some of the better players uh, on our team. And, you know, I was getting beat 10 to nothing. But it was really interesting because instead of trying to prove myself or just look good, I was actually trying to get better. And I started to study, like when I was getting beat, I started to study like why these guys are doing better than me. Like, why are they beating me? What are they doing with their hips? Like, where are their eyes located when they're dribbling? Like, what what kind of things do I bite on? What kind of fakes? How do they defend me really well? And I started to amass all this information about how some of the best in the world do what they do. And it started to change. I, I was starting to be able to hang with them in those games. And that really didn't matter to me because I was, I was trying to figure out, all right, what did I learn today? How did I learn and grow? Instead of, what did everybody think of me? Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't ranking myself saying, Jamie, you were an 8 out of 10 today or a 2 out of 10 today. And let me tell you guys, like I trained with this team for, for four months, four or five months, and it was the hardest thing I've been through spiritually, physically, and emotionally. And in four months, I got two or I got three constructive comments. Uh, one was from one coach who just looked at me and said, Jamie, I, I can see your fitness is getting better. That's all he said. And that was after the third month. Um, one other guy who said, Jamie, you're looking a lot stronger. That was after the third month. And the third constructive comment that I got wasn't even a comment. Somebody actually gave me a fist bump and just said swag. And I had to count that because I had nothing else to go back on, <laughs> right? And so this was really hard. I was getting the crap kicked out of me every day. And I had people who were telling me, like, Jamie, you could go and make a lot of money doing you know, all sorts of other stuff. And I was like, man, I could do that, but this is hard. And I feel like I'm getting better. And I feel like this is what I'm passionate about. And so I started to really look for opportunities and it changed from just trying to look good to actually trying to get better um, and and to let go of the comparison. Now, you know, I I didn't I didn't get a contract with the team at the end of the year. Um, You know, it it was kind of an interesting deal where I was kind of happy. But at the same time, I was kind of like, oh, man, that's weird. But I, I tell people all the time now, like in their sport or in their business, the most important thing about what they're doing isn't necessarily the result. It's not the result. The most important thing about your your sport or your business is who you become and the influence that you have on other people. Because what we do with people, and I did the, I do this every now and then again, like we have people write out their obituary. Um, you know, what they want said about them when they're on their deathbed. And never does it come back, you know, hey, I, I earned this much money or, you know, I closed this many deals or, you know, I won these championships. Uh, it's never any of that. It always comes back to two things. It comes back to who we, who we become as a person and the influence that we have on other people. And so I try to help people, you know, whether it's in their sport or in their business, start to put those first things first. C.S. Lewis has this quote. He says, when you put first things first, second things won't be suppressed, but they'll actually in- increase. And so we try to help people put who they're becoming and the influence they have on other people first. And so that their sport actually becomes the training ground for who they're going to become because most people are being used by their sport or used by their business and they're not necessarily using their sport or business to become the type of person that they want to become and have the influence they want to have. So one thing about Jamie that people might not know is today one of the big things you're doing is working with really kind of that mental performance and mindset. Some of Jamie's clients, Steve, are uh, some of the most well-known, highest-performing athletes in a multiple of different sports, people in business and leadership. So, Jamie, when you're working with somebody 
in mindset? What, what are some things that you do to help them? One of the things, and I'd love for you to weave this in, that you shared with me that I'm working with my kids, uh, instead of looking at things from a critical nature of how I ran that meeting or how I did that drill, but what did I learn from that? But I'd love for you to share some things about how you work with these people who have who are continuing to progress and just have these extraordinary results in their life. Okay. And so I think there's, there's two things. Uh, I really feel like there's a pathway towards growth and it involves awareness and then it involves intentionality. And so a big part of what I do with people at the beginning is really try to help them become aware of, you know, where the fixed mindset pops up in their life, because, you know, there are certain contexts where the fixed mindset is very prevalent. And for all of us, I think there are certain contexts where the growth mindset is pretty prevalent. And so, um, and so it's not just that you are in a fixed mindset or you are in a growth mindset. Um, and so I try to help people, you know, become aware of those situations. So, um, for, for one guy, uh, or I'll just speak for myself when I was training in Ireland and I was working with people, I realized that when I would get picked up by my teammates to go to practice, when I was in that car, they would talk about the coach. They would talk about the other players on the team. They would talk about other people who are being wildly successful in England, uh, you know, other, other people who aren't doing great. And that caused me to start to feel like, you know, my worth comes from what I do. And so once I started to become aware of that, I started to become very intentional knowing that when I get in this car, <laughs> I largely know what kind of stuff is going to happen in the conversation. So I have two choices. I can either influence the conversation or I can distract that stuff and I can do something else. And so I would either read or listen to audio, or I would start to ask questions that would move the conversation away from, oh, look at him. Like, he's really good. The coach doesn't know what he's thinking. Uh, you know, all these things that really just weighed on me. And so I, I really try to help people become aware of the context where the fixed mindset comes up and where they really feel afraid to kind of step out. And from there, we can start to become very intentional about changing that. So the thing that we have to understand about the the brain and, and the growth mindset is it's actually something that we train. So how do you define the growth mindset? So the growth mindset is really um, believing that your worth comes from who you are, not what you do. But it's also this belief that we can actually get better at things if we just try them and, and work at them. So, I mean, you go into a class, uh, a classroom in first grade and you ask people, how, how many, how many of you are artists? you're probably going to get most of the hands pop up. But if you go into a third grade classroom, you'll ask and you'll probably only get two or three hands out of 25. And it's really interesting because some people have decided that others are better than them. And then what do they start to do? That They stop practicing drawing. And so I got this nine-year-old. This is awesome. I love this kid. He, he mentors me more than I mentor him. Um, but he plays soccer and, and I was training him and you know, we were doing some stuff with his dominant foot. And I said, okay, let's, let's start working with your left foot. And he's like, man, I'm like, all right, hold on. <laughs> and so I was like, what's, what's going on with your left foot? He's like, man, my left foot's crap. <laughs> I, was, I was like, okay. I was like, let me, let me break this down. I was like, if you think that your left foot's crap, what aren't you going to do? He's like, I'm not, probably not going to use it. I'm like, okay. And if you don't use your left foot, what are you going to start to believe about your left foot? That it's crap. And I had to take him another step further. I was like, all right, and if you believe that it's crap, what aren't you going to do? He's like, I'm not going to use it. All right, and if you don't use it, what are you going to start to believe? 
And so we go down the spiral where we reinforce these behaviors. One of the reasons I used to say I wasn't good at math. One of the reasons I was crap at math was because I would go to the back of the book and I would get all the odd answers and write them down. And then I guess at the even ones. I didn't put in the work. <laughs> and I had this belief that, you know, the Gilberts uh, are not great at math. Well, you know, something you did with your son, though, I think it's very powerful that people can bring into their lives, both in uh, in every area of their life. With your experience, you could have told your son why it's important with the left foot, why you need to develop it, but you didn't dispense advice. You asked questions, so he created his own awareness uh, about this whole situation, why it was important to start connecting that personally to what he wanted to be able to accomplish with in that moment with what he was doing. And if we can bring that almost that coaching approach, asking questions and creating that awareness with people can really accelerate their ability to get the results that they're moving toward. Right. And so that that's an excellent point. And so Carol Dweck's work actually shows that we as people in leadership or as um, peers around somebody actually have the ability to push them towards a growth mindset or a fixed mindset by two things, by how we praise them and by the questions that we ask. And so I, I start to I, I do a lot of work with people in leadership, trying to equip them with good questions that change um, that change the values that are set in their organization or in their program. So let me give you an example. So for a sports example, somebody comes, uh, somebody gets home from playing a golf round. And if you're not at that golf round, what is probably one of the first questions that you're going to ask that person? How'd you do? What'd you shoot? What'd you shoot? And so what they know straight from the get go is that what you really value is the score. Right. And so I have a lady who plays at a very high level. She was working with some young kids and she did this. Two kids were coming off off number 18 and she said, hey, how'd you shoot? And one kid was like, oh, man, it was fantastic. I almost hit par. The other kid shot in the hundreds. So by one question, she absolutely crushed one kid, lifted another kid up. But what she did for both of them was she promoted this idea that your value comes from what you do. Right. And so the most important thing in my eyes, if I'm the one asking the question is, what did you shoot? How did you perform? And so I said, let's change this. Instead of asking the question, what did you shoot or how did it go? Did you win? How many minutes did you play? Did you close the sale? What if we started to change and we started to ask questions that were about the process? And so when I talk to people, I rarely ask them about how they've done uh, you know, in anything. I hardly ever talk about their sport or business, to be honest. Um, that stuff comes out. But what I ask them is I'll say, tell me, tell me one of your, your best mistakes today. Or I'll ask them, what was one of your greatest moments? And it's really interesting because <clears throat> they start to go back to the process. Hey, tell me something that you learned today. And, and we, we start to show that we value the process of growth rather than just the result right? And so if we can help people move towards a growth mindset, well, then they start to, they start to look for ways to affirm what we value. So they start to get out of their comfort zone, try things that are a little bit beyond their ability, which is actually going to strengthen them. It's going to increase their ability to do even better stuff later on. But what happens is we, we continue to go back to this box and we ask questions that are going to keep people in this fixed mindset. Hey, what'd you shoot? Did you close the sale? What were your numbers for the quarter? And so the questions that we ask and the things that we praise are what we start to get more of. So my son, my son's two and a half. Um, we live in Denver and we got this awesome skate park and he rides a little bike that doesn't have pedals. Um, 
and he's a little bit of a daredevil. He's got a lot of me in him. And, um, and so we go to the skate, the skate park all the time. And he's at a point now at two and a half where he'll drop in on an eight foot ramp. And I'll be, I mean, my wife has heart palpitations just thinking about it. I'll be honest, like sometimes it scares me as well. Um, but I'm encouraging him to get outside of his comfort zone and do things that are on the edges of his ability. And so one of the questions, if I don't go to the skate park with him, the first question that I ask him every time he comes home is, tell me about one of your best crashes. And when he tells me about that. Amy loves that question. Oh, man. And she it's hilarious. She she knows this. Like she wants the same for him, but it's really hard for her because she's terrified. And I mean, to be honest, we're at the skate park and there will be people who are there, you know, who are just like, dude, that kid is a G like <laughs> that kid has no fear. And I'm like, yeah, um, that's kind of good. I'm glad he, you know, he challenges the, the edges of ability, but he'll come home sometimes. And the first thing that he'll tell me without me even asking now is daddy, guess what? Guess what I did? I was, I was up on this rail and you gotta, you gotta remember these rails are like two inches thick. He's two years old. I'm like, what are you doing on a rail? But he's like, daddy, I fell down. And I'm like, cool. What'd you, what'd you do? He's like, I got back up again. And it's funny because, you know, the questions that we ask, the things that we praise are largely what we're going to get more of. And so I think in leadership, what happens is we put so much focus on results and in an individual's lives, we put so much focus on results that we don't actually grow. And, it, and it's puzzling sometimes when, when I ask this question to people, I say, hey, what'd you learn today? And people are like, what do you mean? What did I learn today? I'm like, what did you learn? And they're like, well, the coach had on this drill, you know, that I hate or, you know, my boss had us doing this stuff. I'm like, I didn't ask what you did. How did you actually learn? Like what, how did you actually grow? What did you actually learn? And when I start to praise that learning process and the people that I get to coach and mentor, that's one of the first things that they bring to the table whenever I talk with them. You know, that is such a great example. I, I actually use that with my son with baseball. He had kind of a, a slump instead of, you know, he was very frustrated. So on the drive home in the last couple of weeks, since you and I met, I started asking him what, what was just the heart of the word. You look back, what was the worst moment in that game? Yeah. When this pitch went by, it was a strike. What did you learn? And we started talking about this in the last three games. He's batted, uh, almost 600 because <laughs> he started, he started actually thinking about what he was doing in that moment, how he was thinking about it. And, you know, that is so important. You know, as a coach, we, we bring that same kind of methodology out, working with people to create that awareness. So, you know, since we're almost out of time here, Jamie, as we okay. wrap up, what are just some final thoughts you'd like to leave with people? Well, I mean, the biggest thing that we talk about really is that your worth doesn't come from what you do. It comes from who you are. And the growth mindset is very simple. Um, it's not easy. It's simple. And you got to remember that we have, you know, years of training in this fixed mindset. And so to be able to reverse that process, we have a really simple tool. Um, I'll give it to you guys. You guys can give it out as a PDF or however you guys want to do it. But it's called a What Went Well Journal. And so most of us, you know, have this negativity bias. And when we get done with our day or sport, you know, we'll think about all the things that didn't go well. And we challenge people in this to write down 15 specific things that they did well. And what we do is we, we train our mind to find the good things that are happening rather than all the problems and the mistakes. And what it starts to do is it starts to shift people away from being terrified in their sport or business because it's going to dictate the rest of their life to, you know, today's an opportunity to learn and grow. Anything that happens to me is in my best interest. So, you know, I encourage people to do that every single day. Um, 
and it really starts to, it's the simplest way I've seen to train the growth mindset. Um, so I'd really encourage people in that. If you'd like to learn more about Jamie, his speaking, his online courses, his mentorship program, his book, just go to our show notes for this episode, eternalleadership.com slash 064. All that and more, eternalleadership.com slash 064. And as always, that link is embedded in the summary of this MP3. Next time on Eternal Leadership, charitable estate planner and entrepreneur, Alan Pratt. When it's all said and done, my friend, why are we here? Why are we here? We are here for others. We are not here for self. And so if we're here for others and God's blessed us with some financial wherewithal to apply into the life of others and we're just haven't figured out how to get that going yet, then that's, that's a wonderful journey to embark upon. And even if you don't have the financial wherewithal he described, the journey our guest is going to describe in the next episode is unlike any we've featured on this broadcast thus far. I love it. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership. Eternal Leadership.